Hello, I'm Charles Clausen, your host of the Ampex Podcast, a show where we engage in conversations with entrepreneurs and innovators whose wild ideas and exponential thinking are reshaping the universe where we live, play, and work. I believe these powerful conversations will inspire you to pursue your dreams. So we're excited today to have Mitchell Hora as a special guest. Mitchell is um, an entrepreneur. He's been running um, Continue Mag for yeah. seven over seven years as yeah. CEO. Yeah, and um, he's an Iowa State graduate, um, focused on agricultural systems technology, agronomy, and yeah. crop science. Yeah, and um, you know he's doing a lot of exciting things, which we're going to dig into today. Um, what I like to do, Mitchell, with all of our guest is to start with, in your younger years, what inspired you to become an entrepreneur, yeah. an innovator, and a disruptor? You know, what motivated you? Where did you get your passion from? Yeah, my younger years, like not very long ago. I'm 28 years old now as we, <laughs> as we sit here today. So uh, yeah, my younger years are still now, I hope. But, uh, but no, um, looking back on it, I've always been an entrepreneur. I didn't know it at the time. I didn't know what my path was going to be, but looking back, I actually started my first company when I was like four years old, selling lemonade. There's pictures <laughs> of little me uh, at the farmer's market. So my mom and grandma are really great bakers and always had big gardens and everything. So I grew up going to the farmer's market on the square in Washington, down in Southeast Iowa. And uh, so they'd go to the square and, and have all their stuff, you know, and I'd have a little lemonade stand off to the side and sell lemonade for like 50 cents a cup, you know. And, um, and made a little bit of side money that way, but figuring out, you know, how to put a sign together and how to charge and count money and all that kind of stuff and interact with customers. Um, you know, I guess I've been doing it since I was really tiny and I don't know what the, I was using the money on or nothing, you know, buying toys or something like that. Nothing, nothing productive, but, um, Started started with that, and then when I got into junior high and high school and all that, I was renting some farm ground. I had hogs, I had my so pigs and this stuff. This was in just high like school. You were doing junior this? high, high school, yeah. So so had pigs and stuff for like the county and state fair and a small little enterprise off of that and make a little bit of money anyway. With show pigs, you don't really make money, but at least going through how to set up a budget, and how to do the financing, and how to have somewhat of a little business. I had a hay business as well. So would would bale hay from like our edges of our fields and our waterways and stuff like that. So some conservation stuff, but then selling hay to some of my neighbors. And uh, then I was working and doing technology stuff as well. But yeah, always had different things going on. It was never, you know, it was never an actual company and have everything all very official, but now was looking a one, back on a it, one kid show where it, yeah, Mitchell it, just out there. Well, I'd recruit all my siblings and I'm the oldest of five siblings. So my four younger siblings, you know, always got recruited in. Um, but actually now as we for, fast forward to today, um, three out of my four siblings all have their own companies now as well. And my wife has her own company and I have, I think between my wife and I, we have seven LLCs or something like that. Wow. So seven different kind of things and not, not all of them are major, major deals. You know, my main thing is continuum ag, but, um, what I've learned is I'm an entrepreneur and will continue to 
build and start and grow companies and um, I need to learn a lot about utilizing people and delegating and organizing myself and and um, and that's where you and I have really connected on getting me started on that. I've got a long way to go. One of my major things I got to work on here for the next year, but um, but being a visionary and seeing opportunity that is my thing. Yeah, you know, just for our audience, um, Mitchell's current vision yeah. is to support a million farmers in becoming more profitable and sustainable. Yeah. And yeah. Um, you know that's that's a nice start. So you might. Um, yeah. Tell us a little bit about Continuum Ag, yep. kind of how you came up with the idea, how it's evolved over the last seven years, and then yep. we'll we'll dig into that a little deeper. Yeah, so kind of was laying up there, you know, with growing up, going through high school, all that kind of stuff, being involved in the family farm. I'm actually seventh generation on our family's farm that's down in southeast Iowa, Washington County, a little way south of where we are right now, but... Um, fairly small family farm, 700 acres. It's nothing, nothing too big, average or just below average type size um, to be a standalone family operation. Um, it's a row crop farm, so corn, soybeans, just like everybody else in Iowa. Uh, but the difference on ours is we've been very focused on conservation for a long time, using no-till since 1978 using cover crops since 2013. And now those two practices are really the core of what's now coined as regenerative ag, where we're regenerating that soil and building it up, but that's a, that's a different deal. The, uh, I went to Iowa State, because that's what my family's always done. I'm like number 19 in my family <laughs> to go to Iowa State. Um, I never did a farm, I never did a tour I never did an official visit or nothing. You know, I grew up going to football games and stuff up there and had been to campus plenty of times. And it wasn't even like an option. It wasn't even, it, I never considered anything else. It was just, that's just what we do. We go to Iowa State. And all four of my younger siblings all have gone through Iowa State. My brother's a senior up there right now. All three of my sisters all have graduated from up there. Most, pretty much all my cousins as well. Like, it's just what we do. So I think now we're probably, I think my brother's probably number 20, 25, 26, direct like in the Hora lineage to go through Iowa State. So uh, uh, long-term legacy of, of all that, um, but found agronomy and ag systems technology, had an internship where I learned about crop consulting, and that's where Continuum Ag was started as just a concept and the original original concept had nothing to do with helping a million farmers or nothing. It was have a small consulting company here in Southeast Iowa, do soil sampling and basic crop consulting, helping farmers be involved in the family operation and, and die. That was my plan. Consult, <laughs> farm a little bit, die. That, that was the extent of the plan. I had no idea, you know, what we really wanted to do. Now, of course, it's technology, software, very, you know, very much thinking scale and, uh, thinking bigger impact. So you graduated seven and a half, eight years ago. Yeah. In the um, crop sciences and the ag systems technology, was AI and machine learning even a word back in, in those days? No, I mean, I mean I'm sure it was years. a word. It was a word, but when I mean, I was started... it a concept that you studied or learned about? Or... <laughs> no, I haven't taken classes in like any of this stuff, but like regenerative ag was not a thing. Soil health was not really a thing. 
Um, so I started Continuum Ag in 2015 is when we technically kind of launched. And uh, the story there is I was at a different internship up in central Minnesota, went to a conference and met some consultants from South Africa. And these guys were working on this Haney soil health test, which I had just spent my whole summer studying and working on and trying to figure out how to utilize the data. And, uh, and I'd built some systems around it and had been doing a lot of work. Um, I said, hey, send me the data that you've got. I'll help you out and I'll take a look. And uh, they said, I, I was back in Ames at this point, back up at school. And I helped them out and they said, okay, send us an invoice. And I was like, I don't know how to do that. <laughs> so that's what I went to. Charge that. you? That's a novel concept. Yeah, that's why I'm like, wait, make money for this. That sounds good. So I went to the ag entrepreneurial office up there. Uh, Dr. Kevin Kimley is a guy who, who still directs all that. I'm still very close with. And uh, he helped me through it. I've been to South Africa twice and still working with those guys today. Um, so that was 2015. Uh, graduating in 2017, just doing the consulting, we launched the software in early 2020. And now it's machine learning, building in big data systems, um, and really cranking up the opportunities to utilize all this data. I think in agriculture overall, we've been collecting data for a long time, 20, 30 years plus. Right. We've never really used it. And now finally getting to the point where we can really use the data. Well, I, w I want to pause for a minute. The um, primary purpose of the Ampex podcast is to talk to entrepreneurs yeah. and innovators whose wild ideas <laughs> and exponential thinking are helping to reshape the universe where we live, work, and play. And I, I think the point I'd like to make to our audience is, you know, five, seven years ago when you were graduating from one of the top ag schools mm. in the country, these exponential technologies like AI and machine learning weren't even really on the discussion board. And no. today they're becoming mainstream. So part of our, our challenge in the Ampex podcast is to stimulate curiosity of people to learn about these yeah. convergence of technologies. Yeah. And you're, you're using a lot of AI and machine learning to help farmers, but the the farmers are steeped in generational. You mean your family's had the farm yeah. for seven years, traditions yes. and ways of doing things. Yeah. And even though you can prove scientifically that you can save over $105 an acre yeah. and reduce costs by using these techniques, it's still scary. So scary. Let's, let's talk about- Change is scary. Yeah. So let you probably have one of the more conservative groups of customers in one of the most conservative states in the nation. For sure. Let's talk about, you know, how, tell us about uh, Topsoil, yeah. the database, and what you're, you're doing to try to um, give insights into soil health. Then we'll talk about, you know, the change yeah. and overcoming the fear of change. Yeah, so yeah, I think yeah. that's what humans struggle with on so many levels. That's right. So, so yeah, started the company, um, graduated 2017 be, to be back around Southeast Iowa, had already had things really up and going so that when I graduated, I w we were off and running and really hit the ground running and was very fortunate to be in a position to, to do so. And um, was just doing consulting though, for the most part. Soil sampling, 
is basically how I made money. It's a very low margin business, very labor intensive, not a scalable thing. That was still not any part of the conversation. At this point, it was still maybe get a couple employees, which I did hire three full-time employees in 2018, which is the biggest mistake that I've made. Um, they're great people. I'm still buddies with them. I talked to one of them actually on my drive up here. Um, still friends with the three, but it was I didn't understand scaling at the right pace. And what I most did not understand is don't just hire people. You have to have processes built first and then figure out how to scale and automate components of the process to somebody that it could be delegated away to. And I didn't even have the process built. I was just like, <laughs> cool, look at all this. We're making money. This is awesome. I need to hire a bunch of people and let's just do more and they'll figure it out. And, and most employees can't just figure it out. They've got to have systems and processes. And uh, that's why most people aren't entrepreneurs and why I know that I am. So, I mean, so at that time when you kept hiring more employees and taking on more work, I assume you, yeah. you went from 50 hours a week to 60 hours oh, a week to 70 hours oh, a least. week. Yes, yeah. You hired these employees, but they that's couldn't right. keep up. So you just had to step up and fill the gap. That's right. And the, the uh, revenue did not grow at that type of pace, <laughs> but the expenses <laughs> massively grew. And, uh, and again, it learned a lot, good people, um, still friends, but, um, core thing number one before hiring is have processes even if they're very simple um, or as you're getting people brought in to have them help to build the processes so, so let's talk about that let's and let dig into build. that a little deeper so you hired people they couldn't you didn't have the processes did these people have the skills to develop the processes you needed no or because they were just warm bodies that could work hard but they didn't know how to get you to where you needed to go No, yeah they were warm bodies and they were 21 <laughs> year olds too just like me just fresh out of Iowa State as well and they didn't know they didn't know how to do this stuff they're not entrepreneurs and uh, had some skills to be able to do tasks but not had no idea that we needed to figure out processes and like how to build some of these systems and uh, so we started getting that figured out, but that also then led to topsoil and back to your kind of your original question. And because task number one was how do we deliver this program and this soil health data? How do we deliver it to a customer so that it brings value so it can be implemented and used so we can show them return on investment and so we could actually scale. And because at this point I would get the results back from the soil lab so we would collect some soil, mail it to a lab. They would email us back the results. And I would spend hours digging into the data and writing these detailed emails to my customers about how to read the results and I would attach the results to the email. And then I would talk to those customers later. They'd be asking me and I'd be like, well, yeah, did you get my email and see all my information? And they're like, oh yeah, I got that. But yeah, I didn't, I didn't read you know, all the details in there. So I was spending hours putting together these long reports and all this information. And that no one looked at. Well, they're farmers. Of course they're not going to look at it. <laughs> they're not going to sit down and read this you know, half hour long email to try to figure out how to read this soil report. They needed to have somebody to sit down and walk through it with them, but also they needed it to be visual. Because as farmers, we're used to seeing the map. Right. And, uh, and data goes red, yellow, green on the map. Red is bad. Yellow is average, green is good. That's how we think as farmers. We've been trained now with the data tools 
to uh, to be able to have that visualization. So it prompted uh, you know building our own software, and that's now Topsoil. And now we have the largest data set of this soil health data. We have farms in 42 states and 20 countries. And now we can really do the fun stuff, what I call it, of utilizing this AI, utilizing this technology to do something with the data and uh, reverse engineer environmental outcomes, reverse engineer profit metrics, yield metrics, productivity metrics, and uh, utilize weather data with soil, with management, with integration of other scalable and real-time technologies to really be able to utilize all this information. And uh, what we call ourselves now is we're a soil health data intelligence company. And I think that was key. And I learned it from a, uh, a mentor of mine who, is, um, who was in the Marines for a long time, military guys, who helped me to come to the realization we're not a soil health data company, we're a soil health data intelligence company. Because farmers have tons of data and it's everywhere. And sure, we can help farmers gather data, but the key thing that we bring is intelligence, which is what to do with the data. So how many acres do you have in topsoil today? About 850,000. 850,000. So with a million farmers, how many acres will you have in topsoil? About a billion. A billion acres. Yep. That's, that's Global, pretty exciting. That's, that's huge. Okay. So our big, our BHAG, you know, our big hairy audacious goal is to help a million farmers profit from improving their soil health. And this was really clear to me, and I think you and I have talked multiple times on the key breakthrough in building the company, creating scale, communicating with now investors, and uh, developing goals and bringing people on board is we've got to have a vision and a where are we going. And I didn't have this at the beginning. Remember my vision at the beginning was <laughs> uh, here's this consulting company, I guess, and I'm just going to kind of have that and farm a little bit and die. That was the vision. Well, that's not that exciting. Now, when, did we, when did we start working together? So that would have been... 2019? Maybe late 19. So just for our audience, I'm um, on Mitchell's advisory board and I'm also kind of a strategic coach. Yeah. I'm probably the only one in the business that has no technology background in no agriculture. Ag. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm the disruptive innovator. <laughs> yeah. You know, I've been pushing Mitchell to think about exponential, which means yeah. 10 times, 10x, which is a thousand percent. Yeah. So, you know, how do you ha generate huge benefits right. and how do you impact a lot of people? So he's talking about an impact of a billion acres. Yeah. And, you know, right now where you have clinical sites, I, I mean, I think you're close to 110 bucks an acre yeah. savings just on reduced yeah. fertilizer cost yep. and inputs. You take a hundred times a billion and you come up with a big, big number. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. let's talk about the, um, the challenges of scaling yeah. and getting a million farmers to bring a billion acres into this. I mean, yep. I mean, that's a hundred billion dollars. That's not chicken feed. Yeah. Yeah. But it, but there's resistance, even though there's such huge Definitely. economic impact. Yep. The pain of change is currently way more than the pain of staying the same. And the pain of staying the same in agriculture is pretty high right now. We're at all-time high input costs for fertilizer, chemicals, land, all this stuff, labor. Very expensive. But we're able to overcome that and bear that pain of staying the same because commodity prices are so good. Right. 
as far as corn prices and stuff and selling into the market, you can make pretty good money. Even with high input costs and inflation driving everything up, because the value of the outcome is really solid, it's okay. And you can still make money. So the war in Ukraine helps that because supply yep. is down. Yep. So the war demand Ukraine, is there, prices issues. are up. But what, what disruptive event could come along that could cause commodity prices to fall? I mean, is, is that something that could happen in the next 10 years? I think so. I mean, it just overall global recession type issues and stuff, um, you know, just le- especially as you're looking at like in China with uh, if they don't have all the money, they're not going to be buying as much pork. And where's a lot of our grain go into pork in China? Mm-hmm. So that's a major potential issue. Um, any of like just in war with China, Russia, like that's going to impede a lot of that stuff. It could be a major problem. Um, also, a lot of our grains today go into renewable fuels. I think renewable fuels are still going to be a thing for a long, long time. But if they're not, with electric vehicles, electric and stuff, vehicles and solar power, yeah, which of course that stuff is going to continue to go. But it's a long, long way away from having any real scale. So that's more than 10 disruptive. years out before yeah. it becomes a major disruptor. Yeah. And, and uh, it seems like there's still going to be a major play in this space. Because even if it's not necessarily ethanol for gas-powered vehicles, it's still going to be renewable diesel for bigger uh, trucks and such. And sustainable aviation fuel for airplane airlines and all that, those are going to be much slower to get to electric. Um, so there's likely still a play on some of those other alternative fuels, even if it's not just ethanol to be blended in for for uh, fuel, for just gasoline. So what's the profile of the early adopters, the innovators, yeah. the farmers that are using this? I mean, you yeah. guys have been doing it for a long time and seeing yeah. the benefits. I mean, the benefits are huge, not only and reduce costs, but the soil retention in the soil, you mean, you, yeah. you might talk about the early adopters and some of the other benefits yeah. that in a drought, because of the regenerative cover crops and everything yeah. else, you, you maintain soil moisture so the crops survive when the neighbors die. Yeah. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, we're definitely seeing it. So the overall thing here, okay, so back to kind of the big vision and, and growth and stuff too with this is, you know, so it's a million farmers globally um, is a heck of a lot. There's a lot of people involved in agriculture, but the billion acreage number is that in our simple math and simple metrics, a million farmers at a thousand acres each is a billion. Mm-hmm. Today, our average farmer is about that, about a thousand acres each. Most farmers in the world do not farm a thousand acres. Most of them farm maybe one acre or less. In Africa, they might Substance be farmers. two or three hectares. That's right, or less. But our simple math still needs to be a thousand acres, a million farmers, a thousand acres is a billion acres. It's about five billion acres of ag land total in the world. Row crops, there's five billion acres or total agriculture. All, all crops. everything. Okay. Everything. Okay. And really, the million farmers mostly means as many as possible and global and scale and disruptive, like the point of your question. Not just Midwest, Iowa farmers, you know. Total in the U.S., there's about 2 million farms. Okay. So, but getting 50% market share in the U.S. is really tough. Like, point to, I mean, John Deere, I suppose, has 
maybe 50% market share. Is that because there's just so many farmers that are never going to adopt? And this lifetime, they're not going to adopt this. Well, They'll have or, to wait for the next generation. They, I think they will. Yeah, in this lifetime, we're not going to have 50% adoption. Me, yeah, that'd be pushing it. That would be like the extreme in my lifetime to have 50% adoption of this of these things. Um, I think we can get there. I think it, I think we'll get close to that. Um, but to have everybody doing anything all the same is likely not realistic. Although, like to your current question, it is better. And I, my overall thesis is farmers will do regenerative ag because it's better. It's more year-to-year -year profitable. It's more resilient against drought, against weather issues. It's what the consumer is wanting. Um, it's less it's risk adverse to these outside forces um, it enables your operation to have more freedom and be more in control and not as susceptible to these outside influences and uh, it's just different <laughs> and uh, I think that's the biggest barrier to getting people to change is it's just different it's just like anything else I mean it's just just that barrier that adoption curve just takes time and the biggest issue is that if you don't know what you're doing, you can really screw this up and not gain that $100 an acre, like what we oftentimes see that we can do, but you could easily lose $100 an acre or so, worse. And so that's you what really we need in a, our first year. A, a coach or a guide to help you through the process until exactly. you understand it. And that's where we found is our role at Continuum Ag. We're the how-to. We show you, here's where you are, and here's what to do. That's it. Here's where you are, point A. Here's point B. Here's how you do it. And, uh, and that is the ultimate thing that's been missing is there's less than 4% of farms in the country that are doing cover crops today. Cover crops being one of those main practices here. And in my checklist of items, if you're going to be a regenerative farmer, kind of the one of the pieces that's kind of at the minimum is you got to be doing cover crops. Explain to, to our audience what a cover crop yeah. is, Mitchell, so they understand. So most of the time we plant our crop in the spring and we harvest it in the fall. And then over the winter time, nothing is out there. It's just bare. And uh, there, so in a lot of farms, till that soil and they, they incorporate the residue to prepare the soil for the next spring. In a regenerative system, you don't do any tillage in order to maintain the armor on the soil and don't disturb that soil microbiome and that structure. Right. And instead, you plant some cover crops to survive over the winter time to, to maintain a living root in that system. And that living root is resemblance of the natural prairie system that always had a living root. And that had a lot of diverse living roots mm -hmm. and that didn't have that tillage and didn't have that disruption. So we've got to keep those living roots to keep photosynthesizing as many days out of the year as we can, pulling carbon from the atmosphere and pumping it into the ground because microbes eat simple carbon. So what, what are typical cover crops in Iowa? The main one is called cereal rye, which is a grass, but it's a grass that can grow at as low as 35 degrees Fahrenheit. So, so it's still growing right now because it's... Still growing right now. Yep, so we're probably right about that here today. So you can drive around the countryside and you can see some green fields every once in a while. Those green fields are most likely cereal rye. And cereal rye is used because it's pretty cheap, but it's pretty cost-effective and pretty hardy mm -hmm. as a winter cover crop. And because, uh, of course, here in southeast Iowa, we're going to 
be frozen up for a good chunk of the winter. We're gonna have snow, we're gonna have ice. It's not gonna be great conditions. There's lots and lots of types of cover crops, dozens. Mm -hmm. And we've experimented with probably 25 different species because in, in having diversity is really key. Different diverse species pump diverse compounds into the soil to feed diverse microbiome, just like within our gut. That's mm -hmm. why you need to eat a diverse, balanced diet and all that. We're made out of the same things that the soil is. We're all microbes. And uh, so we've got to keep those diverse living roots out there as much as we can to protect that soil, to feed the microbiome so that they can cycle nutrients and help us to have a more living system. Uh, while at the same time, we are drawing down carbon, improving water quality, reducing erosion, um, and improving the nutrient cycles so that we can cut back on our synthetic inputs and so we can have healthier crops with more nutrient density to provide a more nutritious feed source into the world. So the, the cover crops, the uh, this, this rye, how many tons of carbon would an acre of rye pull back into the soil yeah. in a fall or in a season? So we did some samples on some of our rye here this year that was full maturity. Okay, so it was about five foot tall, pretty thick, and uh, we were harvesting some of this rye. Mm -hmm. And at that point, if I remember right, I don't have the notes in front of me here, um, but it was about 12,000 pounds of total biomass out there. Mm -hmm. And this is only above ground, so not including the roots. So the stuff we could see above ground per acre was about 12,000 pounds. And then uh, we mm -hmm. ran an analysis on that, and it was about 4,000 pounds carbon. Wow, that's huge. 4,000 pounds 4, of carbon. Pounds, so you, you had per acre. You had 8,000 pounds of biomass, which is the stalks. 12,000 12, you know. pounds. Yep, 12,000 pounds of biomass. Oh, plus 4,000 pounds of no, carbon? No, 4,000 pounds of that biomass was carbon. So of all that biomass, it would have been water. It would have been nitrogen, phosphorus, all the, all the material... But as a grass plant, it's mostly carbon because that carbon in the plant is part of the actual cell walls. It's part of the chlorophyll. It's part of the actual stalks and lignin. Like most of that plant material is carbon. And uh, so, yeah, no, the total plant was like 12,000 pounds of biomass, 12,000 pounds of actual material per acre. But as carbon itself, it was like 4,000 pounds. So that's not CO2 equivalents and uh, like carbon credits and stuff. That's actual pounds of carbon, elemental carbon above ground. Now, when all that breaks down and decomposes, most of it is going to be respired back into the atmosphere as the microbes chew on it. Mm -hmm. And then they respire it back off, you know, and basically breathe it back out just like we do. Would we eat? We're breathing back, you know, we're respiring back out. So how much of that 4,000 pounds is um, captured in the soil? I'm not sure. That's what we got to find out. And we also have to find out of all that 4,000 pounds, that's a, in the above ground. How much did I get pumped into the below ground through the roots mm -hmm. or the roots themselves as they get eaten up and as they decompose, how much is contributed into the soil? And I don't know yet exactly. But based on our soil samples from the last 10 years, we have built our soil carbon, 
our stable soil carbon, what is accumulated in the ground. Mm -hmm. We've built that at a rate of about 4.9 metric tons of carbon per acre per year. So for the last 10 years, about 49 tons of carbon built up into our soil to a depth of one meter deep in the last 10 years Well, I mean, per acre, you, 49 tons. If you do the math and you take 49 tons and take it times a billion, you got <laughs> yeah. 49 billion tons, take yeah. that times two, yeah. and you've got trillions of pounds of carbon yeah. that have been put back in yep. the earth. And yep. you know, carbon has a little impact on climate change. Yeah, so that's the, <laughs> you know, the big, uh, one of the big greenhouse gases, of course, and, and a big part of where agriculture can contribute to these solutions. Today, the food and ag industry is about 24% of the global carbon footprint. Okay, 24% of the global carbon footprint, food and ag. In the US, agriculture alone is about 10% of the US carbon footprint. Then you'd have the food supply chain and stuff, which right. would probably get us closer to that 24% of the US footprint as well. But um, huge chunk of it, and out of the carbon footprint, actually a big chunk uh, is actually from our nitrous oxide emissions from nitrogen fertilizer. Uh-huh. That's actually about 60% of the carbon footprint of our of a bushel of corn. About 60% of the carbon footprint comes from the nitrogen fertilizer. So on your farm, Mitchell, with your cover crops and your regenerative processes, how much have you reduced the nitrogen fertilizer from pre-regenerative to today? How many pounds or yep. tons per We've acre reduced by about on average by about 60 to 80 pounds per acre from an average of anywhere from 220 to 240 pounds per acre which is very standard mm -hmm. um, the universities still teach that it takes one pound of nitrogen to produce one bushel of corn okay so if we want to grow 240 bushel corn which would be standard for a lot of farms so we have a goal like that if you're going to grow 240 bushel corn, you need 240 pounds of nitrogen. But what we were missing and what's not being taught is that that one pound of nitrogen per bushel doesn't all come from the fertilizer. It's supposed to come from the natural system. Mm -hmm. And we've been able to incentivize that natural system, build that natural system, and therefore we don't have to buy all this synthetic fertilizer. We can get it from the natural system. Above every acre of soil, there's 14,000 tons of nitrogen. Above one acre, there's 14,000 tons. In the of atmosphere, the atmosphere is 70% <clears throat> nitrogen, 70%. Okay, so in for carbon, CO2, the atmosphere is like 415 part per million or something like that. I don't right. know what the, what the latest numbers are, but about 415 part per million, which is what, like less than a half a percent or something like that? I don't know what the math would be less than ha very, very small amount of our atmosphere is actually carbon in these greenhouse gases. 70% mm -hmm. of the atmosphere is nitrogen. And that's our one of our biggest expenses on the farm every year is buying nitrogen. So if you can pull it out of the air, it's for free. For free. And the good thing is that legume plants pull it out of the air for free. So what By would be examples of those that you would use in Iowa? For soybeans. Soybeans, uh, soybeans, clover, 
like red clover, mm-hmm. white clover and stuff like we get in our yards, alfalfa. Mm-hmm. Uh, we use, as cover crops, we use hairy vetch, cow peas, sun hemp. There's lots of types of legumes. And how legumes work is that they, they create symbiotic relationships with microbes that fix nitrogen. These microbes can take that atmospheric nitrogen and put it into their cell bodies and pull it down and convert it from a unusable gaseous form to a plant available form <clears throat> in the soil. Cause most of the atmosphere in the, most of the nitrogen in the atmosphere is just N2 gas. N2 gas, we can't use. We, we're not using it right now to create protein, to grow big muscles and stuff. And plants aren't necessarily directly using it for their own metabolism. But a microbe can take that N2 gas convert it into nitrate, ammonium, and more so into organic nitrogen forms that can then be broken down. And we've seen that we can now get into our soils with just our cover crops and our soybeans, upwards of 120 pounds of nitrogen into our soil from the atmosphere in just the top six inches of our soil every year. Wow. So now I can grow bigger corn yields spend less money on synthetic fertilizer, build my nitrogen in my soil, but build it in a organic form. So it's not an issue for water quality because we don't want a bunch of just nitrogen out there because it's a big water quality problem. But I can build it as an organic nitrogen in my soil and utilize that to keep growing bigger corn yields more sustainably with that 14,000 tons. It's already up here. I just need to capture it. But the key thing is that most farmers were told and are taught in the current ag system only quantifies the inorganic nitrogen that's in the soil, which is nitrates and ammonium. The nitrogen that I'm talking is organic nitrogen, mm-hmm. amino acids, proteins, enzymes, these and the definition of an organic compound from organic chemistry is it's got a carbon attached to it. That's the only difference. Inorganic nitrogen is just no carbon attached. It's just a, a element that's out there that nitrate is NO, what, NO3 and ammonium NH4. Or sorry, nitrate N... Jesus, now I'm screwing it all up. I'm, no, I'm going to be no help here. But, uh, but nitrate NO3 and... Uh, I'm screwing it up. And to whatever. So I'm looking like the worst agronomist ever, but I'm just all fired up and talking right. over. But nitrate and ammonium, no carbon attached versus this organic nitrogen with carbon attached. And now we can quantify it with the Haney test that we specialize in and show farmers a map with that data so that they can utilize that new pool to create better intelligence around managing their synthetic fertilizer inputs and keep those dollars in their pocket. Follow-up question. I'm, I'm curious about these biomes, these organisms that collaborate with these cover crops to capture the carbon. What are they? What, what are these, these bi- biomes these look like? What yeah. are they? So the, that are capturing, so well that are capturing the nitrogen or the carbon? The carbon. Well, so the carbon... Or, or maybe I'm confused. The nitrogen is what we were first talking. So the legumes utilize the microbes in the soil to, to capture the nitrogen out of the soil. Which feeds the plants that are it's coming. It's going to feed the plants back. So the plant 
the so the microbes interact with the plants because microbes eat simple compounds like sucrose, fructose, glucose, simple okay. sugars. They do the same thing in our gut. But we can chew and use our saliva to break it down from cellulose or from a uh, carbohydrate. We can break it down, start the process so that when it's in our actual gut, now it's those simple compounds that our body can actually absorb. But we have to start it with a physical chewing process with our saliva to start breaking down the, the system. In the soil, those microbes don't have the ability to do that. They exude some enzymes and they can break it down into some simple compounds and, and, uh, and still interact with it. But the plant needs to be pumping those simple sugars into the soil. And the plant wants to pump those simple sugars into the soil because the more microbes that it can get living and dying and decomposing around its roots, it can absorb those nutrients from that plant or from those microbes dying or being pooped back out or whatever, you know, yep. not actually pooped back out, but basically discharged, discharged, you know, and exuded and those nutrients left over and the plant can take those in. So the more microbes that it can get around it, interacting with the soil and getting the nutrients, the more it's got available to grow. Do you ever have to supplement the microbes to work with these legumes? We do now. So like there's inoculants. You can buy some of these specific microbial products and stuff. Um, but for the most part, especially here in, in Iowa, we have a lot of them naturally in our soils. Now we've played with a lot of these biological products and some of them do create great advantages for us to get more of the good guys into our system. And especially if you're early into a regenerative program and you don't have those good guys, it can really help you to get them. Just like taking probiotics. Right. When you're eating healthy and you're really rocking and rolling, you probably don't need the probiotic anymore or the vitamin or all that medicine and stuff. Because you've got a good population. Because you've got it. Yeah, you've, you've got, got them. Same thing in the soil. There's trillions and trillions of microbes out there. Throw in a couple billion extra of the good guys. Okay, maybe that'll help. But most of them are going to be annihilated right away but hopefully over time you get some of the good guys built up but the main bacteria that the legumes work with to get the nitrogen is called brady rhizobia so it's just little nitrogen fixing microbes and they create little little uh, spherical colonies mm -hmm. on the edges of these plant roots because they need the sugar from the plants and it's only legume type plants that can get them the correct sugars that they need. And they create these little colonies on the plant roots. And we can see them with the naked eye, these little colonies. And uh, by forcing our legumes to work better, by having them out there with cover crops and stuff and with the diverse system, we're seeing that we can get additional benefit in terms of nitrogen for our next year's crop. Has anyone thought about corn and um, coming up with some microbes that would work through whatever the corn discharges and keep it working so you know when you rotate soybeans one year and um, yeah. um, corn the next year if you could find microbes that work with both yeah then the carbon capture would be so much higher. I mean, yeah. does anyone think about these things? Yeah, I think there's there's a big push on that. And that's like even our buddy Mike, that's what his company does. Uh -huh. So my business partner. Um, so there, there's a variety of companies that are looking at, you know, getting more of those nitrogen fixing microbes that can interact with corn. Now, for the most part, these companies are still talking, apply the product one time to that corn and it helps to fix nitrogen for that corn. Mm-hmm. 
And then over the winter time, most it farms, dies. of course, don't have a cover crop and they, they die. Now, I have seen, I plant my corn and I use the product and then I plant my grass type cover crop of cereal rye, which would be a cousin of sorts to corn. Corn's a grass, rye's yep. a grass. And I am seeing some carryover the following year. So are these microbes evolving to inter interact with the cover crops? I think so. I don't know that they're evolving. I think they just don't really care. They just oh, are they're they're just, just bred to, yeah, they just want sugar. They just, and yeah, it's like, me. oh, hey, here's a root that's alive. Feed me. And, uh, and now I don't have all the metagenomics data and stuff to back this up. What, what we saw and what we observed was that where we applied the product, the following spring, we could see that the grass there, the cover crop, was greener and more robust in the block where we had that microbial product applied versus where we didn't. We could see that with our drone imagery. And, uh, and I told the company, because of course they say, oh no, there's no carryover and the microbes as soon as that corn is dead, they're dead and it won't carry they over. They just wanna sell you more next That's year. That's right, yeah, yeah, you gotta buy it again next year. <laughs> and I was like, guys, I maybe there's not enough for the following years, but like there's definitely still something here, whether it be that the microbes interacting with now my cover crop and they are still working together or there was just more nitrogen that they built originally. Now they did die because they don't have corn anymore. And there's just some residual nitrogen sitting out there that my cover crop was able to use. Um, but, uh, not, uh, not necessarily my issue to go and try to get figured out. I've got enough. I know. Uh, I'm, I'm I've got enough other problems. I'm curious. So on the whole soil health topic, I've got a couple questions. A hundred years ago yeah. in Iowa, um, when we started or whenever we started farming, there's been a long period of time. What has been the impact of um, tillage? and rain and wind over decades and decades oh, and yeah. decades to the level of the black topsoil yeah. that we all take for granted in Iowa. Degraded What's, it like crazy. I think they say upwards of 50% degraded already. Um, so, I mean, we've really lost it. And you can, you can especially see it when you drive around the countryside this time of year and you look at the tops of the hills and they look really light colored and you can basically, mm -hmm. you can see the subsoil that at the tops of the hills, that black soil is completely gone. It's down to zero. It's fit. It's hundred percent loss. Now that black soil is not totally gone. It's just gone from the it's top of the, the, it's at the bottom. It's in the Mississippi and in the Gulf of Mexico. Part of it's down. Part <laughs> of it for sure is there. The standard loss from the government, from the department of ag and NRCS natural resource conservation service standard loss of soil. It's called T. T loss is the, mm -hmm. in the equation. Standard loss is five tons of soil per acre per year. I've actually so over a hundred years, that's amazing how much yeah. topsoil has run off. It's something like the size. It's something like the the depth of like a, a penny or of a dime or something like that or or less. But um, so we don't necessarily see it because it's such a small amount. But yeah, five tons per acre every year for the last 150 years, that's a problem. And uh, so now we've got to build that back up and protect that soil and so revitalize. So on your, on your farming operations and your early adopters, how much topsoil 
regeneration have you seen annually from the cover crops and the no-till? I, I don't have a great metric to go off of for that. It seems like we're getting a lot. And, and over uh, 10 up. years, would it be several inches? Of- no, I don't think several inches, but um, I'm hoping that over time, yeah. But uh, maybe a couple inches, you know, I don't know if we, if we could get it to where it's an inch per decade or per two decades or something like that. I think that would be probably pretty darn good. Well, so, so we, slowing down the erosion would yeah, be a big impact. Slow the erosion, slow the loss, continue to build up over time. But just being able to cycle and utilize that depth of profile better. We, uh, I have a project going on with Colorado State University looking at one meter deep soil samples. And they had some of those from our farm. And we've, we've still got more than two foot of topsoil. Um, now, I don't know where we started, if it was three foot or not. Um, I'm not sure, but we still got a really nice profile there. But what we are seeing on our farm is that we're getting a mixing of soil mm-hmm. where we get some of this nice black soil mixed down at the bottom of that th- one meter deep sample. And I'm getting some of that clay soil from the subsoil getting that mixed into my upper profile. So how does nature do that, that just from the mixing from a, a, a meter? I mean, yeah. that's a lot of shifting. A lot. It's just from the Do you have any idea how that works, Mitchell? The earthworms. The earthworms are the growing. The earthworms. Oh, yeah, yeah. Definitely from the earthworms. And we can see it. Okay, so our earthworms are developing channels that go clear throughout that profile. An earthworm, I think uh, on average, an earthworm will move about 100 feet per year. 100 feet for a worm. One worm. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so 100 feet of channels and mixing and stuff. And those worms are digesting, you know, this, the soil and plant material and stuff as they go. And what we've seen is along our earthworm channels in the upper profile, we'll see these clay deposits of soil around the outside of the earthworm channel. Oh, you mean kind of like a mound on the top of it, kind of like a gopher hole where they, well, they so take see, the dirt we out? Well, so you see some of that, but this is actually down in the soil, kind of on the edges of their little hole. Mm-hmm. So they probably deposited it at some point as they were passing through and they pooped it out. Yeah. And then when they came back through or whatever, they, it was put pressed out to the sides. And now you've got this clay deposit that's maybe a centimeter long mm-hmm. and around the outside of their channel. And uh, it's very odd. We just started seeing that in the last year or so as we dig. And we have folks at our farm all the time. And it's been very important for Dad and I to have those people out to our farm because we get the shovel out and we're digging around and we're teaching them. And at the same time, of course, it's teaching us about being observant and learning and watching what's happening in our soils. But one of those things being that, yeah, we see clay soil because it looks very different. It's a, it's a very light orange colored soil mixed in with our dark black colored soil. So it's very obvious that it is completely something out of place. Going on. And we know that it's from at least two and a half, almost three foot down deep in that soil. And now it's getting put up top. And we assume, of course, and now I've got some initial data to show that at probably the same rate that they're pulling that clay soil up, they're putting this black soil back down in replacement. So is there a metric or have you thought about a metric or is it even applicable to look at the the earthworm count per yeah, I mean you could do acre. you could do a, a sample right. and multiply that for yeah. the acre. And yeah, so out. we can do that. So the uh, so the last time we did earthworm counts, there was seventeen earthworms per cubic foot 
of soil. Cubic foot. Yep. That one foot by like one a foot lot by one of worms foot. Seventeen. Foot by foot Pretty by foot. good. So we did that. There were some uh, grad students from up at Loris College or something like that. I think is what it was, and uh, they came down and did a variety of different tests and stuff on our farm. And what they did was, yeah, dig a one foot by one foot by one foot square and just put that soil onto a tarp. Mm-hmm. And then they shuffled through the soil and counted the, the worms. And in all the farms that they trialed, we were tied for first place. This was a couple years ago and uh, earthworm populations are gonna vary quite a bit based on the soil temperature and moisture and all that. Cause they're gonna move and be significantly deeper than just one foot in that soil. But at that time, 17 per cubic foot, um, there's 43,560 square feet in an acre. So about, about three quarters of a million earthworms per acre on our farm. And if you didn't have any earthworms, it would be, the soil would be... Oh, it'd be a brick and it uh, would not work at all. But most farms are like that in Iowa. Most farms, you know, you're going through and you're using tillage and disrupting that soil, which of course is destroying their habitat that they just created and their homes and everything that they just created. And they're like, well, now we're screwed. And, uh, but also it's sealing off that soil too. So you're not having the air and the water movement that those, might, that those worms are going to need, especially to create those channels deep down into the soil. Uh, one of the other things that we've seen with that is that the so earthworms are like are nocturnal in terms of when they come up to the soil surface and come outside because they don't want to be eaten of course and plus they're you know it's it's cooler and uh, they're not burning up in the sunlight of the day but these earthworms would come up and they will grab plant material and they make it into basically an upside down nest a little burrow it's mm-hmm. called an earthworm midden and uh, we in our farm. All of our residue on our farm gets piled up into these little middens, these little burrows, usually three or four of them per foot mm-hmm. up on the soil surface. And they're usually three, four inches in diameter. Mm-hmm. And uh, they'll be piled up maybe a half an inch to an inch thick. And uh, they'll have all this material just piled up in these little middens. And every single time we can move that material away and you see the big old earthworm hole right there. And a lot of times you'll actually see the earthworm scurry back down into his hole. But they pile up all that material on there just like a squirrel, you know, saving it, storing its nuts for the wintertime and stuff, that they, <laughs> they'll burrow, burrow up all that material. So then during the day, they can just go and grab some of that material and take it back down when they get hungry. Um, but it's, of course, protecting their little house and stuff as well. But really, really wild to see, you know, the, that uh, activity that's that's and, that's interesting. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about. Um, so as part of the Ampex podcast, we've kind of um, we have disruptive innovation. Yeah. We have the future of work. Um, we have human connection and grounded with nature. And so much of what you're talking about is how humans can interact with nature yeah. to have a, a huge impact on agriculture and yeah. the environment. And I don't think most people have any idea what we're talking about in this connection with nature yeah. and the relationship between nature's and human health and you know food health. But talk to us about the cover crops in the no-till and what that organic 14,000 pound organic mass on the surface does in terms yeah. of 
water retention and Huge. reduction of soil temperature because it's yeah. not insignificant. Massive, massive, massive deal. So, but all of this stuff and the connectivity boils back to you are what you eat. Right. We learned it when we were little and our moms teach us that you are what you eat and what we eat stems back to the soil at some point for pretty much every time. And uh, in, in that soil, okay, so we were just talking about the earthworms and about quarter million or three quarters of a million earthworms per acre, but in our healthy Iowa soils, in one teaspoon of soil, there are more microbes than there are people on the earth. So there's blows billions. There's, there's over Eight nine billion, billion microbes in one teaspoon one of soil. One teaspoon of soil. That's amazing. So what, what do traditional farming practices do to those microbes? Do Just they kill them? Annihilate them, especially the fungal um, communities and the more complex microorganisms. A single-celled bacteria, they can recuperate and, and bounce back pretty quickly. You know, they're, they're multiplying all the time and not as susceptible to fertilizers, tillage, some of the things that we do. But it's the more complex systems in the soil food web, like fungus, protozoa, nematodes, some of these larger things, they really have a hard time recuperating when we throw this out of whack. So we've got to leverage all those microbes, enable them to cycle all these nutrients and work for us, create healthier plants to create healthier people. And it's all connected back through. We are made out of the same things that those microbes are, carbon, hydrogen, water, nitrogen, all this stuff. The human body is about 18% carbon. We're mostly water, mm -hmm. you know, hydrogen and oxygen. But then for hard element, carbon is our most abundant element, about 18%. Same thing in a corn crop. And the human body is about 9 trillion cells, or sorry, the human body is 10 trillion cells. 1 trillion cells human, 9 trillion cells microbe. Which freaks me out. I teach farmers about this stuff too. <laughs> and that's why uh, we're reciting something now. But that freaks me out. The human body, one trillion cells, human, nine trillion cells, microbe. Because we're mostly all bacteria in our gut and everything. They completely cover us all over the place. And if you were to vaporize all my human cells somehow, mm -hmm. my, you'd still see basically an image of me here for half a second before all my microbes you know, fell apart. You know, And there's just a puddle of microbes on the ground, I suppose. But... Uh, kind of freaky how it all works together it's all the same type of stuff they're all just so you know intertwined together um but if we could better leverage that to be healthier to eat a, a correct diet and not throw things out of whack all the time like we love to do um we, you know it all stems back just like in the soil we we can't disturb it we got to feed them they what kills the microbes? Compounds. Is it the insecticides, the pesticides? All, all this stuff, yeah. I mean, so fungicides, the insecticides would be killing it, but it's also just disrupting that entire soil food web. Oh, just as well. by telling it disrupts it. Oh, for sure. So, because cause part of those microbes, you know, would like a lot of oxygen. Part of them don't want a lot of oxygen. Part of them want that warm soil at the top of the surface. Part of them want it cooler, like it is down below. And when you disrupt that, you're gonna, you're disrupting them and they don't want to be there and most of them are going to die um but the big issue as well is that with back to the carbon and your question when we overexcite that soil microbiome and incorporate too much oxygen mm -hmm. those microbes are going nuts because they're breathing in oxygen and they're 
in hyper performance mode, just like when we get a lot of oxygen and stuff too. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they can, they're overexcited and they eat too much of the carbon and they eat more of the complex carbon molecules, like what's in the organic matter, the more stable forms. Mm-hmm. And because they're eating that carbon and they're breathing that back off, it's well, going up in the atmosphere. Back in the environment way too fast. And that's right. And if there's no plant there to capture <laughs> it, we cause the greenhouse gas issues that we've that we've caused. Oh. So that's that's how this all cycles back through and why what we're doing can be the solution here is the typical is to only have a living plant for a couple months out of the year, then disrupt that soil, introduce a lot of oxygen, introduce all that residue, and the microbes will eat it. And that's why we did tillage. We got a bunch of residue, we need to get rid of all that residue so we can plant into it easier next year. So we're not planting into a bunch of material and the soil dries out and all that. Well, that has worked for a long time, but now we have better technology and equipment to plant into a undisturbed soil, a no-till soil that has a residue on it. We have the technology to do it today. Like we wouldn't have had decades ago when my family was doing tillage as well. But uh, by overexciting that system, we get some short-term gains in terms of plantability and yield and all this stuff because there is a lot of carbon being exuded and Mm -hmm. the most abundant element in a corn crop is carbon. So by utilizing tillage, we get a lot of extra carbon. The plants respond, we get nice big yields, but because we are doing a lot of that disturbance at the wrong time, we lose most of that carbon. And now over time we've degraded it down and, uh, and are starting to run out. And it's actually already the most limiting nutrient for yield Besides, if we have to have water, number mm-hmm. one. But the most limiting element beyond that is carbon. Wow. And that is not being talked about by the farmers at all. So, just so our guests understand, you know, at the, the field day last year, yeah. your dad was doing this, this demo, but it, Mitchell was talking about the, the cover crops that can be rye, that can be four or five feet tall. So what the farmers do is they'll go plant the soybeans or the corn right into this this rye that's was four feet tall so four or five feet tall so they'll kind of knock the rye over and break it at the ground so it'll all be laying on the ground then they'll plant the soybeans and the corn right into this five foot rye that's laying on the ground and you know your dad was he took some soil samples and i think i think it was in the mid 90s during the field day Mm -hmm. uh and we were out there you know, two o'clock in the afternoon, and he 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 took a temperature of the soil, and I think the soil was like seventy-four or five degrees on yeah. a ninety-five degree day yeah, because of yeah. you know all of this uh, cover crop and all of this organic matter. And the um, I'm trying to remember what's what's your experience on water retention? Yeah. In you know the top foot of soil when it yeah. gets really hot in the late summer, and everyone else is worried about it's losing huge. their crop. Productivity, huge deal. This year on our farm, we had four inches of rain on our farm this year. Usually we get... In the whole season. In the whole inches. season, four inches. We were, if you look at the drought map, even today, we're, our farm is right on the northern edge. So Washington County, Jefferson County, Van Buren, that area is super dry. And we were right in the middle of it and just got nothing for rain this year. And our soybean yields were still above average. Our corn wasn't great. We definitely lost out a little bit on corn, 
but we are early into this process still. And it shows we were able to be pretty resilient. We don't have a crop insurance claim. We are not a bear, we are not a burden on the taxpayer, but our yield still took some of a hit, but we have seen a drastic improvement in our resiliency. So a couple of metrics to your point there. Number one, on the temperature thing, in order to maintain that moisture in the soil, we can't evaporate it off right away, which is where most folks have a problem, one of the problems. And yeah, one of the days uh, that I was playing around with the thermometer, it was seven. It was 91 degrees outside, mm-hmm. but underneath all that cover crop residue where my soybeans were, it was 76 degrees. Perfect. Above the cover crop where it was radiating off heat, it was 100 degrees. Mm-hmm. And I took over on some bare soil that didn't have cover crop on it. It was 126 degrees. We start frying microbes and they start dying off whenever it's above 105. Well, the, their the plants probably start dry, dying at 126 degrees with no moisture in the at soil. 86 though. degrees. They show 86 that. degrees. 86 degrees. So, our, and we accumulate that, and there's calculations for that. It's called heat units. So, corn is growing and metabolizing and functioning anywhere between 50 and 86 degrees. So when that soil is burned up, even if it's not that bad outside, but if that soil is burned up because of the sunlight on it, that plant is not functioning correctly. And you're not getting carbon in the soil. You're not producing yield. That corn is in defense mode. Okay, so we're seeing that now with that residue to basically provide insulation for the soil, just like we do in our houses and stuff to keep it from burning up. So we're not evaporating off as much of that moisture other item is we've got to get that moisture in the ground. The four inches of rain that we got this year is super low. There's been a lot of the times the last couple of years, usually in the month of May, we've been getting 12 to 15 inches in the month of May alone. Alone, wow. Yeah, the last couple of years. So this year was very, very dry. And again, most, most of the state of Iowa had great conditions. It was, we were just in the pocket this year that was bad. Across the country, the average water infiltration rate the average water infiltration rate is a half of an inch of infiltration per hour half an inch of absorption of water per hour, hour. so if you got more than a, a half an inch of rain let's say you got three inches of rain in an hour yep um most two of and a half inches is going to run off and go someplace else and not be to captured. mississippi and everything else and cause flooding like we've seen in the city of cedar rapids right. or like we saw a couple years ago on the missouri uh if we're not able to get that water in it's going off to the side and carrying with it residue, pesticide <laughs> residue, soil, everything's going. Okay, the average soil can only infiltrate a half of an inch per hour. On our farm, we can do four inches of infiltration in less than five minutes. So if, if we got a 10 or 12 inch rain in an hour, you're going to absorb take all of that. All of it in. And, and there's, there's no erosion because the water is staying and just going down into That's the exactly earth. That's exactly right. Yep. So that's I mean, doesn't that... go this way. It's going this way and actually absorbing into that soil. So we can infiltrate an inch of rain in six seconds. So a major issue for a lot of farmers is that we get heavy rains in the springtime, like we typically do in Iowa and like we're getting more and more. And a lot of that soil, a lot of that water can't get in. So it ponds on top or it, it either runs off or it just ponds up because mm-hmm. a lot of farms are flat and it just sits there. And then it drowns out the crop. And now you've got these big circles out there of drowned out crop 
and you have to go back in and replant right. so that you don't have that bare spot in your field. But the other key piece to the water retention to your question again is we can now infiltrate four inches of rainfall per hour. We haven't had to replant at all in the last four years I think we're up to now. We, we're not have to use crop insurance and these kind of things because the water gets in, but also 1% organic matter in the soil holds 26,000 gallons of water. And on our soils, a lot of them now are upwards of 5%. A lot of soils in the state are around 3%. So 3% organic matter soil can hold So you have 130 gallons of water you're holding just because of the organic matter in an acre. 130 gallons, that's a lot of water. A lot of water. So that's why with only four inches of rainfall this year, number one, we've got good infiltration to get that water in. Number two, we don't have as much evaporation to lose that water going this way. And number three, we have better organic matter to hold onto that water. And it holds it because organic matter is extremely negatively charged, just in its polarity, mm -hmm. very negative charged. So is clay and uh, clay particles in the soil. The soil itself is negatively charged. And of course, water is polar, a positive and a negative. So that positive side will bind with the negative charge in the soil and, and hold put. on. But also organic matter, because it's very... Uh, because it's mostly carbon, it creates kind of a lattice structure and a, like a charcoal kind of structure in the soil. So it's got some porosity to physically hold on to some of that water as well. But, but yeah, back to, okay, why aren't farmers doing all this stuff? Well, most of the time we get too much water. Most of the time we don't have these drought issues. Well, now it's becoming more prevalent and, uh, and especially out west in places they utilize irrigation water from the ground to offset the lack of water problem. Well, now the aquifers are drying up. You look at the sand hills in Nebraska, and those things are going dry. Yeah. I so mean, now pretty they're soon really they're going to start stop farming because right. there is no groundwater. Well, there's no groundwater, and then there's no organic matter. There's no ability to hold on to that water that you do get when you can pump it out of the ground and put it onto that field. Or if it does happen to rain, that ground is bare and it just evaporates off or there's no infiltration. It doesn't get in the ground anyway and it goes to the creek and you don't get to use it. So out west in Nebraska and places like that, Mitchell, are they past the point of no return where they can't, it's too late to start restorative agriculture? No, 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 it's I too late to start building organic matter and cover crops and start holding water and start regenerating the groundwater because nope, without nope. water, we have a hard time as it's, humans. It's going to be tough. It's going to be tougher for them, but I still think we're, we're okay if we get going here now, but it's going to take some time because they're degraded to such an extreme point. You've got to come back a long way to make it work. So, uh, it, but the other tough piece of this is, okay, so how do they restore those soils? Well, we got to get that organic matter built up. We got to get the carbon. We got to get more microbial activity. Well, how do we do that? We got to have living plants. Well, how do we get living plants? Well, it takes water. Yeah. <laughs> so you got to have the water to get the living plants to be able to build the soil so you can hold more water. So you got to use, you know, it's a, it's a, it takes money to make money kind of thing. It takes water and it takes plants to be able to build up soil health and be able to get the system to work on its own. But so. It's going to take some time because of that. The water is limited, so you're not going to be able to grow this five-foot-tall cover crop every single year like I can mostly grow here. Mm -hmm. I mean, we don't grow it every year. It's only on the soybeans, but 
But point being is that we can, I can grow a cover crop fairly consistently here and we don't use any irrigation on our farm. We get it all from the, from the sky and from natural rainfall. And in a year like this where we don't get a lot of rainfall, yeah, it's not a great year. But most of the time uh, where we are in Iowa, the standard rainfall is about 35 inches of rain per year. And you got four last year. We got year. four. Well, that was over the growing season. That was from April right. to harvest. Now we've been getting some more rain and with snow accumulate, you know, snow contributes to that 35 inches as well. But, um, but yeah, it was extremely dry. So how many of your neighbors don't use regenerative agriculture that had total losses because of the drought and yeah. had to file insurance claims? Well, I'm sure there was a lot of insurance claim and, and that information, you know, there's, there's some public information about that. Some of it's private and all that. So then the numbers aren't out yet. So I don't know exactly. Um, but I don't know that anybody had a complete failure because our hybrids and our systems have, have evolved so much mm-hmm. that even in bad conditions, you still don't have a failure. But 50% yield loss, oh yeah. We had 20% yield loss. So they're looking at 100, 120 bushels per acre for yeah, corn was, instead with, of 240? That's right. I was with one of my guys. He was doing like 130 some bushels uh, with way more inputs than what we had. And uh, now they are starting to come this route and uh, make this change. Um, but it is going to take time. So what's interesting about Washington County Nationwide, I said there's 4% of farms using cover crops, about 30% using no-till. And those are from the 2017 census numbers. We'll be getting new census numbers here very soon. But 4% and 30%. In Washington County, we're close to 20% cover crop and 75% no-till. Why is that? Is that because of your innovation and no. leadership in, <laughs> no. in the county? No, I've helped a little bit you know, and, and have a couple, but it's more so because in my dad's generation and my granddad's generation they started working on reducing tillage and thinking about conservation so it's been a movement that's already 50 years old in your area in my area so there was a movement here of reducing tillage maybe looking at diversifying and adding some other systems and there was some folks using some cover crops in the 80s they didn't necessarily know it was a cover crop. They probably weren't calling it a cover crop. They were doing it for feed, you know, or for diversifying or, or what have you. But, but they were playing around with some of this stuff in the 80s. Now we found out that, hey, there's, some, there's something to this. There's some benefits you can have here. And uh, we just have to harness that and put dollars into our pocket. And the biggest thing now that I've learned that I teach all my farmers and why we are growing is we have to brand these practices correctly. It's one of the biggest opportunities in ag and in this regenerative movement. Farmers have been told and have been marketed to them that no-till and cover crops are defensive tools. Right. To defend against water quality problems, defend against erosion, defend against that five tons per acre of loss and the problems downstream. Well, when you're looking at it as a defensive tool, it's hard to put that to the bottom line because it's really hard to quantify dollars of soil saved or hard to directly visualize it. Over 150 years, yeah, it adds up. But right now, year to year in 
in my ability to pay back the banker year to year doesn't necessarily directly impact my pocketbook. Mm-hmm. So we show farmers that these practices need to be offensive management tools. That these practices, this is part of my fertilizer program and my nutrient cycling. This is part of my nutrient stabilizer program to suck up any excess nutrients that I maybe didn't lose yes, last year. Right. This is part of my herbicide program to suppress weeds. It's part of my crop insurance program so I don't have to replant. It's part of my you know, carbon building program now so I can connect with the consumer and grow low carbon commodities. It's so many of these offensive outcomes that now directly map to my P&L and directly map to my expenses, which are at an all-time high. So if I can reduce those expenses as a direct implication of doing these practices, now it changes this mentality that I'm not just doing this practice or planting a cover crop because there's some cost share dollars to do it or sure, I'll do it as a last minute kind of thing because I'm sure I'll help out and not get yelled at by the folks in town because I'm polluting the water. Instead, it changes that, that, no, I need to make sure that I get that cover crop done and get it done right because it's going to help make me money next mm-hmm. year. And that change, I only realized maybe two years ago now, but that is the ultimate that we've got to be pushing on uh, to be able to actually get a million farmers to do this and to actually create massive change. We just need to now get back to the beginning here, scaling this with AI and technology. Quick, quick question. What's the break-even point on corn? So um, I, I mean, know, bushels per acre. Yeah, you said 240 is standard. 240 would be kind of the standard. In today's commodity prices, I think most farms would be in the 180, 190 kind of bushels per acre. Um, I think on our farm, we're like 120 or something like that. I need to so even though your yields were numbers. down to 140, you still made 20 still bucks made an money. acre. Oh, yeah, still made money. Yeah, yeah, yep. But um, and every single farm is going to be very, very different. And a lot of farms, like even on mine, like having a really great answer is tough because there's so many moving parts to it. Right. But uh, but we do have some of those tools that we are building now within topsoil to help our farmers to know exactly what that number is. <clears throat> Let's talk a little bit about headwinds, Mitchell. So um, the hundred and six plus dollars per acre in savings is mostly yeah. in fertilizer and how much of that is nitrogen a pretty decent chunk um so nitrogen a lot of farms can cut their nitrogen by at least 20 percent and be totally fine and not lose yield and so if you biggest, get 240 acres of um corn you probably traditionally you'd use 240 pounds of nitrogen yeah for for the bushel so you could easily get it down to 200 180 we're at like 155 let me add, let me ask you this how does a typical traditional uh, agronomist get paid hmm. if, if they're not doing cover crops yeah. and no-till how do they get paid from the farmers by selling the inputs so, so they get paid, so they're incentivized to sell more nitrogen. They want right. to sell 240 an acre because they're going to tell them that if they don't, they're going to have reduced yields. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's, um, there's a huge ecosystem yeah. industry conflict of interest because yeah. the people advising the farmers, That's right. who they maybe have trusted for multiple generations, That's right. are telling them, you can't, you can't back off of nitrogen because your yields are going to go down. That's right. So how, how do you overcome this headwind yeah. 
where there's huge conflict of interest yeah. between the fertilizer companies yeah. and the whole regenerative ag movement. It's one of the biggest barriers in the space right now. And, uh, and one of the biggest opportunities though too, because you're exactly right. Most of the advice that a farmer is getting today, at least throughout the Midwest, there's different pockets where it's more independent. But for, mo- for the most part, by and large, the farmer gets their advice from the person who's selling them the inputs. Usually from the ag retail location or the seed guy or whatever. And they might not be selling you everything, but it's typically you're getting the advice from the person who's selling you the tool. And yeah, they make their bonus and make their commission based on volume sold. Not based on me making profit and me making yield or me being sustainable. They make money based on selling the product and selling bulk. And uh, and on certain products, of course, I'm sure they're getting better margin than others and better commissions and all that. And uh, the big opportunity and what I'm looking at and what I'm trying to provide disruption on is what is that person's business model in sustainability and in carbon? And I do believe that there is some where if I'm creating carbon credits or low carbon grain or sustainably sourced and I'm getting a margin, they should be able to get a cut of that. And the better I do, the more they can get paid. And that's what we're looking at with Continuum Ag. Today, I charge a farmer a per acre fee. Right. And I, then any value that I gain for them, they keep all of it. You know, they just have to, I just have to sell them well enough that I help them to create the value on the other side. And we do that with data and our tracking and all that. So we've been able to prove we can charge money to help a farmer be more sustainable, be more profitable. And I believe we can package that program so that that ag retail person can, they can go and sell it. They do know that farmer. They've got their phone number. They know their. So you incentivize the, the the retail people to get a new business sure and part of the win versus being totally cut out. That's correct. I think we need to. Well, I don't um, know how else you win because part of your problem is you got to build credibility and trust. With and, all. and the people selling them the fertilizer are going to say. Yeah. That continuum ag, don't believe them. It's yeah, going yeah. to be a disaster. You're not going to save 106 That's bucks exactly an acre. Right. It's going to cost you yeah. 120 bucks an acre. You're not going to make any money this year because That's you exactly don't get right. the yield. So yeah, I mean, I'm going to sit down with them, and then the next phone call is going to be to that guy, and they're going to say, hey, like I just had these guys here. They were talking about this regenerative ag stuff. This sounds like a pretty good deal. What do you think? They're going to say, oh, yeah, no, that's a bunch of crap. Don't listen to them, whatever. You need to buy this new thing. And, uh, and we're going to be continually battling back and forth. Now, of course, I've seen it. <laughs> and uh, it's not even about drinking the Kool-Aid. It's about it is better. And so I know that eventually they'll come. I mean, the data and that's why, tells That's why our story. business is growing is because they are figuring that out. <laughs> and they are coming. And they're, they know that that local person, they're not necessarily selling them all this stuff to be malicious. But it's how they make their money. And it's how they make their bonuses. It's what their metrics are because they're reporting back on their quarterly metrics or weekly metrics and sales metrics stuff, they're reporting it back to the rest of their company. And they, it, this is a business. And uh, we just have to help them to monetize a different metric. And I think we will. And um, But that's also why I have my, some of my customers now include Bear, Land O'Lakes, Coke, uh, some of the biggest players in, in agriculture. And the biggest traditional ag players and they're coming saying hey 
we need to start figuring out what our business model is going to be in this other thing because it's not we're not going to make as much money doing what we've been doing. John Deere as well. They're not going to make as much money selling these big tillage equipment and selling these massive high horsepower tractors. It's not going to happen. Well, let's come back to those collaborations in a minute. I'd like to explore headwinds a little bit more. So yeah. my, my next question is, of these family farms, these thousand acre farms, what did it look like 20 years ago? And my question really is, is how much of a consolidation is going on with corporate farms coming in, buying the small family farms? I mean, look at combines yeah. now. You can spend a quarter million bucks on a combine. And if you only have a thousand acres, you, you the if capital you're cost. you spend a quarter million dollars on a combine, you're getting a heck of a deal. Try more like three quarters of a million to a million on a oh, combine. Oh, so I mean, the oh, capital yeah. cost of being a f small farmer, you almost have to have I someone else come in and be your partner. I was talking about this to somebody the other day. If I was to, if, if you wanted to go start your own farm and be a row crop farmer here in Southeast Iowa, and that was going to be your thing and you were going to make enough money to have that as a full-time deal, like for real, and mm -hmm. feed a family. I don't know if you could do it and get started and actually make money on it for anything less than $10 million. So that would and be a thousand that, acres a small, plus the, no, the no, equipment. No. That's about 350 acres in the equipment and all that. Oh. So I don't know if you could make it on that. But what would probably it have take to have like double, like my family, like 700 acres, $20 million. To get started. I mean, so, it, and then uh, you might be able to finance it, you know, and not put up all that capital yourself. Well, interest rates have just tripled. Yeah, now 7%. Last year. And luckily in agriculture, we get deals on our interest rates and stuff. And, uh, and I was able to. Uh, I bought some land when I graduated from Iowa State a couple years ago, small 40 acres, right around the corner from mom and dad's home farm. It's one of those where it's, you know, it comes up for sale once a lifetime uh -huh. and that's it. Like, got to do it. You got to jump on it. And I got a, a solid deal. Um, it, it was the appropriate price and I was able to work directly with the seller. So we cut out a lot of the middleman fees and, and she got a good deal and I got a good deal and... Uh, it, it, but it was a fair, appropriate deal. Today, that land is doubled in value, probably pretty easily. I bought it for about $9,000 an acre, and I guarantee I can easily sell it for $18,000. This is in four years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and I was able to participate in a beginning farmer loan through the government for a low interest loan. They're still making money and still... Uh, still got to pay it back with interest, but it is uh, subsidized through federal government to just that the interest rate isn't that high. It's just not taxed. The, the gain on the interest just isn't taxed um, at the bank because of a beginning farmer loan. Now there's a limit on how much you can borrow in that program. Right. It's like a half a million bucks or something like that. Right. So nowhere close to the 20 million that you need to go and start a new big farm. But wow. Um, so, so, and of course, then that's only the <clears throat> land that I had. Luckily I've got my parents with the equipment and with the know-how and all this. And I've got my own things going on that there's no way I can make, make enough money to support a family just on that 40 acres. So what does the, the family farm look like in 10, yeah. 20 years in, so in Iowa? It's actually back to what you were talking with, consolidation. It's going to happen. Has it already started? Oh, big time. I mean, what? The, 
I don't know what those metrics are. You know, if the percentage of folks that were involved in agriculture versus today, it's 1% or less. Um, you know, size of family farms, the amount of family farms just continues to go down like crazy. And I don't see that changing. I mean, I would love for it to. I would love for more family, small family farms and, and, um, uh, and you know, everybody's old McDonald's farm and Kumbaya. Right. I would love that. Right. But it's not reality. It's not going to happen. So... My guess is that the the family farmer with 500, 700, 1,000 acres is a lot more resistant to change. A corporate farm that's come into Iowa and owns two, three, four hundred thousand acres, yeah. they're probably looking at this regen ag stuff and saying, oh, we can save a hundred bucks an acre on yeah. 300,000 acres that they've got planted. Mm-hmm. The numbers yeah. are huge. There's a couple different things there. So. One, I think that that typical family farm, that's the thousand acre average kind of farm, they either need to really focus on efficiencies, like what we've done, lower your cost of production to improve your margin because you only have so many acres. We got to compete against everybody else that is those larger farms. We got to improve our efficiencies and that has incentivized us to change. If you're going to stay the same, you got to figure out how to keep growing because you're working on small margins uh, but also you're currently incentivized to just kind of hold your breath and stay mm-hmm. the same because you got enough cash flow coming in because commodity prices are good enough. You can kind of keep on going, keep playing the game. In my area, a lot of farms have diversified by adding livestock, mm-hmm. hogs in, in sheds and stuff. Uh, and now those pigs are owned by other local family operations. They're very large family farms, but they still are family farms. And um, so diversifying that way instead of trying to buy more land, which isn't necessarily available. Less than 2% of the ag land in the state of Iowa changes hands on an annual basis. Less than 2% churn annually. So there's not a whole lot out there. That's so what, what drives the, uh, the value of farmland in Iowa? Is it all... Um, Pricing, commodity pricings, and yields? Yeah, commodity pricing is a big one, but a lot of it's proximity and availability, simple supply and demand. In our area, it's does that building have a, does that farm have a hog building on it? If it doesn't have a hog building on it, now a diversified farm that has land and pigs, they could buy the land and build a hog barn on it, and a hog barn cash flows very quickly. You get Mm -hmm. paid a cash rate based on the head space. Mm-hmm. And also now you have the land you can put the manure on. You can grow the food, grow the feed for those pigs, put the manure back on that field, and you got to have more acres to build more barns because it's very regulated. Okay. You can't just build as many hog barns as you want. It's, there's a lot of regulation on how many animals you can have in a certain area because you have to have somewhere for the manure. And uh, so it's very regulated there. But the... Couple couple things back to your question there too on these large large farms. Um, I've been spending a lot of time, especially last week, I was out visiting farms in Iowa and in Arkansas. The smallest farm that we went and visited was a nine thousand acre operation. They were all mm-hmm. between a lot of these farms I'm working with now are between a lot of farms between five thousand and forty thousand acres. Big operations. Now they are all family farms. They are all owned and operated by the family. Now they are a corporation. So is our farm. Right. So is my farm itself. is a It's an LLC, MT Hora Farms LLC. Legally, it's a corporation. 
but it's still a family farm. I think it's ninety percent of the farms, and I, you know, ninety percent of the farms are corporate. They're entities that, for tax purposes and liability purposes right. and all that, and doing it the right legal way. But it's something like ninety-eight percent of farms in the country are still family farms, family-owned, family-operated. Now, some of them are huge and very much act like a corporate type of farm. They have employees, they have payroll, they have payroll taxes, withholdings, they have corporate goals and they have websites and they have offices and stuff like that. I see more of that as going to happen. Um, where it is the larger family farm ownership and expansion of that. And it's actually one of the things I see as the opportunity for our farm and my long-term plan that there's going to be fewer farmers mm -hmm. and even fewer that really think like a corporation. Most of them still think like a family farm, how we think about it of it's a couple hundred acres and kind of a lifestyle hobby kind of thing, but it's not, it's, it's a business and that it makes some money and it's what pays the bills, but they're not running it like a business, right? Like a business guys like you and I would run it. That's how most of the family farms are just, it's a lifestyle company and you farm because that's what you've always done, you know? And I'd laugh about that too, that I'd say, you know, I'm seventh generation farmer. Very few other occupations do you say you're third generation or fifth generation, this or that, or seventh generation, like very right. few. Right. You know, right. you don't say I'm a, very few, would you say I'm third generation doctor or, you know, you don't right. say that or second generation postman or whatever like you don't say that you might be or, you know but in agriculture that's like a big deal that everybody all farmers when they introduce oh I'm fifth generation farmer from yada yada like that's what we do but uh, but I think the opportunity again for the future being there's going to be fewer people to run these operations fewer folks to work on these operations. We're gonna need autonomy and the robotics and there's gonna be fewer decision makers so we're gonna need more scalable, actionable data. And, uh, and there's gonna be fewer resources to be able to, to get it all done. Um, and in, I don't, you know, a big passion of mine is, and why I do what I do is to put those dollars back into family farm pockets so that they are in position to expand and to be able to acquire that next door neighbor when they do come up for sale because they don't have somebody that's going to come back and take over because they give go make more money in town that couple hundred acre farm isn't big enough for that young person to come back and just do that when they can go work in town 40 hours a week kind of and mm -hmm. have vacation and insurance and all this stuff and take weekends off you can't do that on the farm it's all day, every day, you know, no. it's not a very enticing lifestyle for most young people, except that if you're looking at it in a light that I do, where it's super, it's super exciting because of technology and regeneration and working with mother nature, not against her. Like, I think, I think that does bring opportunity for young people to be involved and, uh, to have those, that connection back to the land and stuff. But but I think in order to, to do it, because of the high capital costs and stuff, it's going to be a blend of these things where you're going to have more and more institutional and corporate ownership and basically investors being involved in these operations 
but you still got to have somebody there to run it. And I think that's an opportunity for our farm. I could bring in investment money to have the capital to go and grow to a larger operation. Now, it's not going to have really exciting returns like a tech company or whatever, but more stable, long-term uh, dividends being paid back, sure. And um, to be able to have the technology to diversify the operation and be able to expand, and uh, I think there's opportunity for that. Um, and my role with Continuum is to make sure that we've got a data platform and systems there to help that person who is now running a massive operation um, and what I hope that it does is that that young person can be involved in this more corporate or institutional owned land and they can be earning some significant pay by helping to run and operate the land because somebody's got to do the work and they can utilize that to get good equipment, have good technology, utilize these things and deploy that on their own family operation as well, maybe earn in with sweat equity or earn into this more corporate land, but also have the capital you needed to grow their own family operation. So I think it's going to be a blend. I don't love that. I would love it to be all, you know, small family farms and, and, no. but I just don't see it as it's not going to happen. Well, I mean, it's, it's an evolution of society and fewer people have to feed the world. And, yeah. you know, this has been very exciting and it has been great. Thanks for joining us on the Ampex podcast. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure not to miss future episodes and please rate the show wherever you get your podcast. Thanks to our awesome production team, Lindsay Soderberg, social and digital marketing, Taylor Higgins, video production, and Seth Nielsen, marketing. See you next time.